Faith comes from Hebrews 11.1. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So Christian faith is about believing and trusting and putting confidence in things we haven't seen. For example, we believe there is a God who created everything that exists, and He's the most real thing there is, and none of us has seen Him. We believe He sent His Son to come and live among us and die and rise again, and we believe Jesus is going to come back again one day, physically, bodily, literally, and yet none of us have seen Him. None of us have seen any of these things that we believe that He's done. And on top of that, we believe that faith is, is the way we become right with God. Like we believe we are justified before God, right with God. Why? Because of faith and faith alone. Uh, now, I'm not suggesting here that we don't have great evidence or great reasons to believe what we believe. In, in fact, we do. We have great evidence, great reason to believe these things. But I do just want to draw your attention to the fact that at the end of the day, faith our faith is in something and someone that none of us have seen. And we're going to talk about faith today. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. If you are able, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I am going to begin reading in verse 14, and this is the very inspired Word of God. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when... The spirit saw him immediately. It convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to pray the same thing that this father said in this story. We believe, but help our unbelief. I pray you'll use our time together that we have this morning to strengthen our faith where we don't believe so that we have faith that's honoring to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So first of all, I just want to show you why I'm confident that this passage is, in fact, about faith. I'm not just sort of making this up or winging it here. Uh, verse 19, he says, O faithless generation. Verse 23, all things are possible for the one who believes or who has faith. Verse 24, I believe, help my unbelief. 
And then in Matthew's account, if you read Matthew's account, Matthew tells the same story, but at the end of the story, when the disciples ask the question, why were we unable to heal the boy? Jesus responds and says, it is because of a lack of faith on your part. So for these reasons, I believe this passage is about faith. And I think we see in this passage three examples of faith or lack of faith, and I think there's something here for us to learn from this. So first of all, I want you to notice the anti-faith of the religious leadership. Look at verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. So if you remember what we looked at last week, Jesus has been on the mountain where he transfigured before the three disciples. Only three disciples are with him. And when Jesus transfigures, Peter's response is, let's stay here on this mountain and let's build a building and let's just stay here and worship, you know, presumably forever. And Jesus is like, no, we're not, we're not here on the mountain forever. I'm here on a mission and I'm supposed to go down the mountain and I'm supposed to go into the valley the valley of humility, the valley where there's demons, and ultimately to Jerusalem, and ultimately to the cross. And when Jesus comes down from the mountain with the three disciples, he comes into, enters into an argument. <clears throat> there's an argument taking place. And it doesn't tell us exactly what they're arguing about. It doesn't tell us exactly who's arguing, but I think there's enough here to sort of piece it together and get a pretty good idea. Uh, verse 14 tells us the scribes are involved the religious leaders. These are the guys who are anti-Jesus. They are, they, back in chapter 3, they think he's possessed by Satan, and uh, they are out to get him, and eventually they will. Uh, we also see here the crowd. There's a large crowd. We've, we've gotten used to this. A large crowd follows Jesus wherever he goes. I think they're probably here with the disciples because they've associated the disciples with Jesus. If you find his disciples, you usually find him, but he's up on the mountain, so they're with the, the disciples. And then thirdly, you have the nine disciples. So that's, who, that's who's making up this argument. The religious leaders, the large crowd, and the disciples. And Jesus enters into a tense situation, a tense argument. Look at verse 16. He asked them, what are you all arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So Jesus says, hey guys, what's this, all this commotion and argument about? And one guy from the crowd says, I'll tell you what it's about. My boy is, is possessed by a demon. The demon causes him great pain. He's about to kill him. And I came asking your disciples to heal him, because you weren't here, and they weren't able. And the text doesn't tell us this, but I'm pretty confident that the instigators of the argument came about with the scribes, the religious leaders who probably jumped all over this. Like they smell blood in the water. Jesus isn't around. Normally when Jesus is around, he has an ability to put them in their place and silence them. But he's not here. It's just the disciples who we've seen are a little dull and they're still in training. They're a work in progress. And my guess is the religious leadership is just jumping all over this opportunity to try to say to the crowd, do you see, this is a sham. This guy can't do what he claims to do. Why in the world would you follow someone like this? Now, I mentioned last week that the Razorbacks are playing in the postseason baseball right now. And so as long as they keep winning, I'm going to keep making sermon illustrations from it. 
because that's what I'm, you know, interested in right now. And so I'll apologize in advance for multiple baseball illustrations. But last Monday night, uh, they were playing Nebraska. If you lose, you go home. If you win, you keep going. It was the bottom of the eighth, uh, tied two to two, two outs. And their pitcher, finally, you started, you know, seeing a little weakness. And he started throwing balls instead of strikes. And our crowd of 11,000 plus let him hear about it. And they started yelling out, you know, ball four, ball five, ball six. I think he threw seven balls in a row, different batters, obviously. And they were getting in his head, you could tell. And the proof is the next pitch, it was a wild pitch. He hadn't thrown a wild pitch all night. Threw a wild pitch, and we were able to score a guy from third, so we were up three to two. And then the very next pitch, new batter, hit a three-run home run, and we won the game six to two. And I honestly kind of felt sorry for the guy, you know, like put myself in his shoes, you know, have 11,000 plus people just screaming, yelling, telling you how bad you're doing and trying to get in your head. It's hard for that to not get in your head a little bit. And I'm guessing the same way that that Nebraska pitcher felt last Monday night with 11,000 people just on him, I'm guessing that's similar to how the disciples are feeling with all of this crowd and this religious leaders, you know, smelling blood in the water. Why can't you guys do this? You're supposed to be the representatives of Jesus. You're supposed to be the miracle workers. What's going on here? And I can picture, you know, one disciple tries it and he's not able and he looks around and maybe the next guy's up and he tries it and he's not able. And they're just going down the list of disciples. Can anyone heal him? And I can picture the disciples, you know, perhaps trying different methods. Like, do we just speak to the demon? I'm going to try to speak to the demon and see if that works. And I can imagine another guy puts his hands on the boy, you know. Maybe this will work. One guy, I can imagine, starts spitting because that's often what Jesus does. He'll spit and rub it, you know. I can, let's start spitting and see if that works. And all the while, you know, the leadership is just saying, you know, what are you guys doing? What is going on here? And the longer this goes on, I would guess the disciples are getting a little flustered and a little frustrated. And if you're like me, when you get flustered and frustrated, you often start saying things you don't really, you know is not wise to say. And it's, it's, a, it's not a great situation. And what we see here is anti-faith. And, and it's ironic because they're, they're the religious leaders. They're supposed to be the pro-faith people. But they're anti-faith. You know, they're anti-Jesus. They're not just they're not just anti-Jesus, they're, they're, like, they're on a mission to try to convince everybody else that no one should believe in Jesus. They're, they're evangelistic about it. They're trying to go around convincing people, don't listen to this guy, don't follow this guy. And I just want to point out, this exists in our world today. We have anti-faith, anti-Jesus. And it's, I would say it's growing in, 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 the movement is growing. I would say it's not that long ago when followers of Jesus in our country, there wasn't a great deal of hostility. We got along fairly well with the, with the culture. We got along fairly well. You know, we were generally respected, and we're just starting to see a, a change, and there's a growing hostility toward Jesus. There's a growing hostility toward Christians who would try to follow Jesus, and, you know, people are fine. The world is fine. The culture is fine as long as you have your faith and you practice it in your house. But keep it behind your closed doors and we're fine. Keep it in your church behind closed doors and we're fine. But the moment you take your faith and try to bring it to the public square and try to have a bearing on the, you know, the direction of the community or the school or the, the, you know, the, the country, you know, that's when you start 
experiencing and feeling and hearing the opposition. And I just think we need to be aware. It's real. It's there. I get the sense that it's growing. And, you know, one of the keys is to try to be winsome. You know, we're not trying to go get into fights. We're not trying to go get into arguments, per se. That's not the goal. Our goal is to be winsome and be salt and light and be in the world, not of the world. And so my encouragement to you is do that. Be winsome. Be a representative of Jesus that people say, I'm kind of intrigued. You know, he's such a good neighbor. He's such a good worker. He's such a good student. He's so kind to people. You know, I'm interested. So live in such a way where you're not trying to initiate the fight, but at the same time, we got to know sometimes being winsome is not enough. And sometimes the fight comes to us. And we have to be ready, be prepared, and just know this is a reality. We live in a world, and it's not new, by the way. It it existed 2,000 years ago. There's an anti-faith, anti-Jesus, anti-Jesus follower uh, existence. It's out there, and we should be aware of that, ready for that, familiar with that. Secondly, I want you to notice the superficial faith of the disciples. The disciples are not anti-faith, but in this passage, they are not exactly a model of faith. They're not being held up here as the example to follow. They will be at some point in the future, but not yet, not right now. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus is frustrated. I'm tired. (laughs) I'm tired of being here. What is he speaking about? What is he frustrated about? Perhaps he's frustrated about just a broken, fallen world. Perhaps he's frustrated about a world where you have anti-faith, anti-Jesus people. But I think in the context, he's specifically talking about his disciples. I'm tired and I'm frustrated with you guys. Now, why do I think that? Let me show you several reasons why I think that. First of all, we've seen this before. We've heard his frustration with them before. Mark chapter 4, verse 40, he says, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Mark eight twenty one. he says, Do you not yet understand? Another reason why I think this is because Jesus says it right on the heels of, of the man saying, They were not able. Your disciples were not able to heal him. Verse 18, And Jesus responds and says, Oh, faithless generation, how long? He's frustrated with them because he has commissioned them to be able to do this. Mark 6, he sent them out and equipped them to be able to cast out demons, and now they're unable. And he's frustrated with them about that. Now, if Jesus is speaking primarily to the disciples, like I'm arguing he is, uh, why does he say generation, you faithless generation? Why does he refer to them as a generation? And I think the answer is because that's the language that Moses uses when Moses comes down from the mountain. Think about the similarities between the two stories. Moses is on the mountain with God, the Father. He comes down and he finds the people faithless, disobedient, and he rebukes them. Here's Jesus on the mountain meeting with the Father, comes down and he finds faithlessness among his own, among his people, among God's people, his disciples. And he calls them out for their faithlessness. But the primary reason why I think he's frustrated with his disciples and why I think this is the main point is because of the way the story ends, the way the passage ends. Look at the very end, verse 28. And when Jesus had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. 
Typically, if you want to know what's the point of a story, look at the beginning and look at the end, and that's usually a really good clue what the point of the story is. So this is one of the bookends. This is the ending. He's with his disciples. They're alone. They're in the house, and the disciples say, why were we unable to do that? And Jesus basically says, because you didn't pray. And that raises the question, why are we not talking then about prayer this morning? Why are we talking about faith and not prayer? If he says the reason why is because you couldn't pray. Isn't in the moral of the story you ought to pray? Isn't the moral of the story if you get in a bind, just pray and you'll get out? That's what happens in the story. And the reason why I don't think that's the moral of the story is because of the way Matthew's account ends the passage. Listen once again to Matthew's account Matthew's ending of the same story, the same event. Listen to Matthew 17, verses 19 and 20. 19 through 20. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. So in Mark's account, Jesus says, the reason why you guys couldn't do this is because of a lack of prayer. In Matthew's account, Jesus says, the reason why you guys couldn't do this is because of a lack of faith. And it raises the question, well, which one is it? And of course the answer is, it's both. Both are true, both are accurate. So we have to think about them both in relationship to each other. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, is not so much you didn't pray the right prayer, like prayer is mechanical. You just say these words and then God does this, this, and that. That's not the way prayer works. It's not just say these magical words and God has to do X, Y, or Z. But the prayer is a reflection of the faith. They didn't have faith. That's the main issue. They didn't believe. They didn't have faith. And that was evidenced by the fact that they didn't pray. And Jesus is rebuking them. You didn't have faith. How do I know? You didn't pray. The lack of prayer revealed a lack of faith. Now, in Matthew's account, he emphasizes the fact that only a little bit of faith was needed. All you needed was a little bit. Not a ton, not a lot. He's not calling them to tons of faith. He's just saying, you need a little faith, like the, the size of a mustard seed, which was the smallest seed in the region at this time. But it could become this huge tree, this huge plant. So it had the ability to do something really big, but it was really small. And Jesus says, if you guys just had the smallest faith, you could move mountains. Right? Let, let's ask the question, is, is that literal? Like, should we as his followers expect to literally move mountains? Like, should we expect to be able to change topography of places? Like, if we have enough faith, we could move Pikes Peak a little bit this way or that way? You know, maybe a little closer to the house? It'd be nice sometimes, right? I, I don't think he's being literal here. I don't think he's literally saying you can expect to change the topography of the earth. And when he says nothing will be impossible, I, I don't think he's being literal. I don't think, if I, can I jump up and touch the ceiling? Is that possible for a person who has faith? I don't think so. Right? I think it's understood. I think when you step back and read it, it's understood anything is possible that's within the will of God. Anything within God's will is possible. Now, was it within God's will to heal the boy? Obviously so. It was within God's will to heal the boy at that moment in that time. How do I know that? Because Jesus does it. But the disciples were unable because they didn't believe, they didn't have faith, and they didn't trust him. Jesus says it like this in John 14, 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you ask me anything, 
in my name, which means what? According to my will, as my representative. You're my, you're my ambassador. You're representing me. You ask me anything according to my will, what I would want, the revealed will of God, and I will do it. So why then were the disciples unable to do this? Why didn't they have the faith to do this? And this is a little bit of conjecture on my part. I'm reading into it a little bit. But I think the answer is they were trusting in their past previous success. They've been able to heal in the past. They've got the power to heal. They've got that gifting. They are the disciples. I'm guessing there was a little bit of pride here. Let's show them. Let's represent Jesus. Let's heal this boy. And we are going to do this. And they took their eyes off Jesus. And it wasn't about faith in him. It wasn't about belief in him. How do we know? Because they didn't pray. They just, we got this. We can do this. this we, we're, we are the people who do this. We are the followers of Jesus. So yeah, let's, let's do it. And I think they're learning an important lesson here. This is toward the end of Jesus' ministry. He's only got a few more months with them. And they're having to learn a lesson because they're not going to be with him after he's gone. And the lesson is, don't trust in your past success. Don't rest in your past success. One phrase says it like this, don't, don't, don't rest on your laurels. Your previous experience, your previous accomplishments, don't rest on that. One more reference to baseball and the baseball team. Uh, last Monday night, once again, tied 2-2, two two, bottom of the eighth. I was nervous. I was standing up. You know, it could be over, season over, wasted season. And uh, there was a part of me that hated it. I hated every minute of it. It's like, uh, I hated the fact that they came down to the wire. They almost lost. I, at the time, I would have preferred a landslide victory. But now looking back, I'm kind of glad that they got a taste that you can be beaten. You're not as good as you might think you are. You have the, the other teams have the capability of taking you to the eighth inning. And you've still got to play. You can't just say, we've been number one all year and we've got the best pitcher in college baseball this year, so we've got this. You can't just rest on your past accomplishments. You've got to keep looking forward, playing today, give everything you've got today. At some level, the past means nothing. You've got to look at today. You've got to play today. You've got to go out there and actually do it now. And there's a lesson here for us. There was a lesson for the disciples. There's a lesson here for us. I wonder how many times in ministry we kind of have that mentality. We've got this. We know how to do this because of look at our experience and look at our training and look at our giftings, and we've done this. I've led a Bible study before. I can lead the Bible study again. I don't really need to prepare that much. I don't really need to pray that much about it. I've got this. I've been doing this all my life, leading Bible studies, preparing for Bible studies, teaching Bible studies. I'm pretty good at teaching Bible studies. Right? I will go do it. Got vacation Bible school coming up. Thank you for those of you who are serving and helping out with our kiddos. But there's a ten temptation to say, you know, we've got this. These kids, we, we, they're young enough where we can kind of, you know, wing it. And uh, we can, we've done vacation Bible school all our lives. And we've shared the gospel all our lives. And we've taught kids all our lives. So we got this. We can, we can go crush this. And that's the kind of mentality I think that the disciples have. Right? We can have this mentality with lots of things. We've been on committees before. We know how to make wise decisions. We've got experience. So let's just go make the decisions. We got this. We know how to do this. Make decisions that are wise. Move forward. And what's missing is we got to do this by faith. Like this is it. We can't trust just in our past experience and accomplishments. We got a new day, new thing. I got to trust God to lead the Bible study now. I got to trust God to preach the sermon now. 
I can't just get up here and say, oh, I got this. I know how to do this. I know how to craft a sermon and preach a sermon, do public speaking. If, if it's not by faith, if it's not in God's strength, if it's not with a looking to God and saying, God, you've got to do this through me, and if you don't do it through me, it's pointless. If that's not happening, it really is pointless. And so I encourage you to pray and pray specific prayers, not just like, God, do this and don't do that. Like, bless BBS next week. That's just praying, bless it. The prayer that we're talking about here is more a prayer that says, Lord, if you're not in this, it's meaningless. And if you don't strengthen me and do this through me, it's pointless. And if it's, if it's not honoring to you, there's no reason for us to even show up. So we look to you saying, we need you to do this through us. We need to do this in your strength. We need to do this in a way that honors you. And so I encourage you, as you do ministry, as you do anything, really, anything in life, don't have the superficial faith of the disciples. Have a faith that's authentic faith. How do I know if it's authentic faith? Well, one key is, are you praying? Is there prayer? If there's no prayer, if you're not praying at all, that's a, probably a pretty good indication you're just trusting in your own instinct, your own skill, your own ability, your own past, your own experience. So we, we learn here to avoid the superficial faith that we see with the disciples. Third, I want you to notice the authentic faith of the father. The father of the young boy who had the demon. I think the father is sort of the example, the positive example that's being held up in the story for us to emulate and follow. And notice the irony. The father has never seen Jesus. The father's never been with Jesus, I'm assuming. Never seen him, never walked with him, never talked with him. He, he's like us. He's never seen Jesus. And yet he's got the faith. The disciples, on the other hand, have been with Jesus, talked with Jesus, seen the miracles. They've seen him heal people. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen it. And I think they're supposed to learn something from him. Now, I do want to point out that his faith is not perfect faith, and this should encourage us. Be encouraged. God is not calling you this morning to have perfect faith. How do we know it's not perfect faith? First of all, in verse 22, the man says, if you can do anything, please have compassion on us and help us. If, if you're able, if you're capable. Why would he say if? Maybe because he came in with really strong faith, but now that the disciples can't do it and the boy's still there being convulsed by a demon, and the Pharisees, I'm assuming, are piling on, and, you know, this is all a sham. Don't follow Jesus. So maybe his faith is weakened a little bit. Jesus, if you're able, would you please have compassion and heal my boy? And notice how Jesus responds. He, said, he kind of rebukes him. Verse 23, if, if I can, the question is not if I can, the question is, will you believe me? The question is not, is Jesus able the question is, are you willing to trust him? Jesus says all things are possible with God for the person who believes. And listen to that closely because I think we often misunderstand it. He's not saying all things are possible for you. He's saying all things are possible for God. All things are possible with God. God can do anything, obviously, within his will. God can do anything for the person who believes. The key is, do you believe? Do you have faith? And the man responds and says, I do, I believe, but help my unbelief. And I think once again, we have an example of faith that's being held up here. Like follow this example, emulate this man's faith. It's faith, but it's authentic, it's humble, it's not perfect. 
I believe, Lord, but it's not perfect faith. I believe, but I still got a ways to go. Help me in my unbelief. Notice it's praying faith. It's humble faith, it's authentic faith, but it's praying faith. Remember, that's what Jesus rebukes the disciples for. You didn't pray. You weren't humble. You thought you could do it in your own strength. This man, on the other hand, is humble. He knows he doesn't have perfect faith. I believe, but Lord, I'm coming to you praying. Help me in the areas where I don't believe. I want you to notice that his faith is in Jesus. I believe in you. We typically use the word faith synonymous with optimism. Like, I'm just generally optimistic things are going to work out. I just have faith. You got to have faith. That's not Christian faith. That's just being a generally optimistic person. I'm not sure how overly helpful that is. It's different. That's different from Christian faith. And why do I say that? Because this is coming on the heels of Jesus telling us he's going to die. And if we're going to really follow him, we've got to take up our cross and follow him to death. So it would be a mistake to read this and say, look, if you're in a bind, just pray, just believe, and God will get you out every time and everything's going to be great. That's obviously not the point of the story. Why? Because it's coming right on the heels of Jesus saying, we got to go down and i got to go to the cross, and if you're going to be my follower, you've got to follow me there. It's not faith that all the circumstances are going to turn out exactly the way we want them to turn out. It's faith in Jesus. And he gives us two reasons in this passage why we should put our faith in Jesus. What it is about Jesus that should cause us to trust him. First of all, I want you to notice the compassion of Jesus. Look at verse 21. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Now why does Jesus ask, how long has the boy been suffering like this? Is it because Jesus didn't know? Is it because Jesus has a formula? Like if he says five years, Jesus to pray this prayer and if he says like three months or less then Jesus will pray that prayer I don't think that's what's happening here right what's Jesus doing he's entering into the man's world he cares he's listening how long have you been having to watch your son be convulsed almost to the point of death how long have you watched almost having to lose your son over and over and over and I can imagine the man almost with tears in his eyes saying from childhood And I can imagine Jesus just shake, like, I'm so sorry. Wow. He's compassionate. He cares. He's entering into the man's pain. In Luke's account, when Jesus heals the boy, Luke says Jesus gave the boy back to his father. It's a picture of tenderness. Like, I created your boy. He's possessed by demons. I've redeemed him. Here you go. Here's your boy back. Jesus cares about people. He enters into our world. He enters into our pain. Therefore, you can trust him. But secondly, I want you to notice he's all-powerful. Notice the power and the authority and the ability of Jesus. Look at verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. Jesus has all authority. He has the ability to cast out the demon. He does. Jesus has the ability to say, you have no authority to enter the boy again. But the story tells us that when Jesus does this, the spirit, the the demon convulsed the boy one final time, and now the boy is lying there lifeless, 
like he's dead, like a corpse. The people think he's dead. But guess what? Jesus has all authority and all power over all things. Look at verse 27. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Jesus has the authority and the ability to bring the boy back from the dead. Jesus has the authority and the ability to bring himself back from the dead. In fact, he does. Just like the boy rose from the grave, Jesus will rise from the grave. And guess what? Jesus has the power and authority and ability to raise you and I from the grave one day. And he will for those who believe. That's the key question here. It all comes down to this. Do you believe? You must believe. You must hear this incredible good news of who Jesus is, what he does. He's tender, he's compassionate, and he's all-powerful. He died for your sins. He rose again. He did it all, but you must hear and believe. And God is not calling you to have perfect faith. Let that just give you a sense of, ah, God is not requiring perfect faith from you. He's just requiring small, tiny, the faith of a mustard seed. Just hear and believe. Have the kind of faith like this man in the story that says, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Make sure this morning you're trusting in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we're so grateful that you are patient with us. We're grateful that you are compassionate and tender and merciful toward us because we confess we don't have perfect faith. We're so grateful you don't require perfect faith from us. But Father, we are reminded from your word this morning, you do in fact require faith. And you call us to faith and you call us to believe and you give us great reason to believe. You're tender, you care. You've entered into our pain, our world, and your son, Jesus. And you're all-powerful. You have all authority. You're the king. You died for our sins. That's how much you care. And you're the king. You rose again. So, Father, we pray this morning, just like the father in this story, we believe, but help us where we don't. Help us where we're weak. Help us in our unbelief. I pray if there's anyone in this room or watching online who doesn't have faith, who isn't trusting in Jesus, I pray this morning would be the day where they just have the tiniest, smallest faith of a mustard seed, where they hear this good news, look to Jesus and believe on him and are saved by faith alone. And Father, I pray that we would be people who would walk faithfully, trusting in you, looking to you, walking by faith, not by sight, looking to you for your strength, in everything we do. I want to pray in particular for Vacation Bible School. We lift up the week to you. We pray that you would do your work through us. We confess that if we do it in our own strength, based on our own experience and our own giftings and our own abilities, it's not ultimately honoring